make a better place with my own two hands. Make a kinder place. Oh, with my oh, with my own two hands. With my own, with my own two hands. With my own, with my own two hands. Welcome back to another episode of My Own Two Hands a monthly public affairs program all about solutions to the sustainability problems we face in this era. We interview practitioners helping us navigate these perilous waters, showing us ways toward a just and peaceful, regenerative human future. Today, we speak again with Will Hodges, an activist and community organizer who started a local group called Ceasefire Now, RFV to advocate for lasting peace in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Good to be with you today, Will. Adrian, it's uh, as always a pleasure. So in our last conversation, you gave us a brief history of the conflict that challenged us to remember our responsibilities as individuals, as a nation, and as a species to see that People on all sides of this conflict have their right to return to their homeland respected. Today, we're going to examine possible solutions and peace pathways with the goal of equipping our listeners with concrete ideas about how they might help bring about a peaceful resolution. So let's start with what you've been up to since we last talked. Uh, Ceasefire Now RFV has been in the local news a good deal. Tell us what's been brewing. So we, uh, we went to the Aspen City Council last week um, to bring a, a, a ceasefire resolution before the city council, asking them to, to pass a resolution. Um, we didn't expect them to take up the, the resolution. There's groups all, of, all across the country. You know, we haven't gotten very far with Congress and with the White House. And there's groups that are going to their, their city halls as, as their local representative body asking them to, to pass resolutions for, for, for a ceasefire. We, uh, I don't know, eight of us showed up and we made uh, public comments. And uh, Sam Rose, one of, the, one of the Aspen City Council members, turned his back and he faced his back to us throughout the whole time that we gave comments. The other city council member, uh, Bill Guth, kind of, kind of turned to his side and was on his phone, you know, clearly ignoring us. They didn't decide to take up the resolution. But two days later, we came down to Glenwood and, and did the same thing. And this time there was 11 of us, nine of us uh, in, in, in their 20s. Five of us, I think, gave comments. And uh, Jonathan Godis, former mayor, made a motion to add it to the agenda, you know, and he, he noted, wow, like, 10 young people took the time out to, to show up, and I think we ought to at least discuss this for a few minutes. And they voted to add it to their agenda first thing, and they discussed it. And um, they didn't feel comfortable adopting the whole four pages. Um, they, they had to go through it um, a little bit closer, but they felt comfortable with the first pair. I think all of them felt like they don't want to take sides in this issue, but that how can you argue with a, a ceasefire? So what was the resolution that they adopted? It called for an immediate ceasefire, called for unhindered humanitarian aid 
to the 2.3 million uh, people in Gaza. It called for a, an immediate release of the Israeli hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, as well as the release of arbitrarily detained Palestinians, and uh, work towards the fourth. The fourth part of their resolution was work towards a lasting peace. It's the first city in in Colorado to pass this ceasefire resolution, and and hopefully it inspires other cities to follow suit. Well, in any case, it is certainly generating public dialogue. I've seen the op-eds that have been written in response to all these events. So, uh, kudos to your group for getting us talking about this in public. There's also a film screening this Wednesday at 7 p.m. at the Basalt Library of the film Israelism. Tell us about that. Yeah, the documentary Israelism, I think it came out last year by two American Jews who went through birthright and going to school in America, you know, are instilled in a, a lot of pride in in their faith, but th- th- their faith really gets conflated with the state of Israel, and it mixes with nationalism. Um, there's a huge effort to kind of glorify the state of Israel um, as this ex- exclusively good, you know, you know, nation that can do no wrong. But the film um, kind of turns a, a a critical eye at um, the the effort to instill this, yeah, instill an uncritical attitude towards towards Israel um, and and its policies. Um, and these and these two Jewish Americans were able to visit the occupied territories and, and, and see the brutality, the daily violence, have, have put out this documentary, which um, I guess is being shown on a lot of college campuses. It's being banned on a lot of, a lot of college campuses. It's, it's caused kind of quite an uproar. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. You know, in listening to these stories, uh, what strikes me is how you've been met often with enthusiastic support and sometimes with equally enthusiastic pushback from a specific ideological position that you just named as Zionism, which is the the subject of this film. And it's um, playing this Wednesday at 7 p.m.? This Wednesday at 7 p.m. at the Basalt Library. So it's about Zionism, but I think most people don't really know what that term means. So last month, he told us about how historical Zionism, starting with Theodore Herzl, first organized the political will in Europe for the Jewish settlement of Palestine and led to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. But the Zionist project was by no means complete at that point. So tell us a little bit, you know, what is Zionism now? What are its goals? And how is it operating? And what is greater Israel? Zionism... It was the project, the historical project, to create a homeland for Jews, a national homeland for Jews, or a or a Jewish state in the historic land of the Jews. Um, and you know that that's fine. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I think Zionism today basically means, um, I mean, it can it can mean Jewish nationalism, um, and it, it's. I think it's also very closely associated with, you know, the the Likud party in Israel and the the goal of having all of the land of Israel for the 
state of the Israel. You know, what is the, the, the boundaries of greater Israel, according to Zionists? It's from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. Um, they don't really see a, a picture for a, a, an, a, you know, an adjacent Palestinian state. The good rabbi Dovid Weiss um, has a description of Zionism um, to help our listeners understand how it is not Judaism. Uh, here is Rabbi Weiss. The mass slaughter in, in Gaza has nothing to do with the conflict between religions, between Judaism and Islam. We have been living together as Jews and Muslims for thousands of years. We've been living together with our people. It's only an introduction of a political movement called Zionism and that's using the name of Judaism to declare war on the people of Palestine, to, to declare and vilify the people of Palestine that they're anti-Semites, anti-Jews. That's totally repugnant and false. We cannot be silent. We're Jews. Because we're Jews, we have to stand up and say, this is not true. It's not in our name. We totally object to this. We cry and hurt with the people of Gaza and Palestine. So Rabbi Weiss goes on to point out the bitter irony that in 1948, the year of the founding of the State of Israel and of their first ethnic cleansing of the indigenous Arabs, which Palestinians call the Nakba, or catastrophe, was the same year the United Nations unanimously adopted the Genocide Convention. That was the first global treaty that criminalized genocide under international law and obligated all signatories to, quote, pursue the enforcement of its prohibition. So I want to get into this because this is a key provision that means all member states of the UN are legally obligated to work preemptively to prevent genocide whenever they think it may be happening anywhere in the world. So this was truly a, a landmark achievement in human history, I think, wisely conceived in the wake of World War II as a means of preventing atrocities such as the Shoah or Holocaust from ever happening again. I mean... Well, what a ray of hope for humanity. And I don't know about you, but my hope uh, dims when we witness what's happening now. And human rights specialists around the world are sounding the alarm on the war in Gaza as a textbook case of ethnic cleansing that meets all of the same legal criteria for genocide, as did the crimes for which the Nazis were prosecuted in Nuremberg. So the thing that is becoming clear is that while such crimes are generally difficult to prove because the genocidal intent of the perpetrators must be established in court, usually the criminals are discreet about their goals and don't flaunt them in public. Not so in this case. As anybody who's watched Israeli media will know quite well, the Israeli government is brazenly open about its intent to ethnically cleanse the population of Gaza. So open, in fact, that Israel has been summoned to the International Court of Justice, which is the judicial body of the UN and the highest court in the world, which found last month that Israel is plausibly committing genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza right now, and thus they ordered Israel to take provisional measures to avoid genocidal acts immediately while the ICJ considers this criminal case of genocide. 
that's being brought before the court by South Africa, precisely by invoking the Genocide Convention of 1948. Here is uh, Tambika Nkaitobi from South Africa's legal team uh, before the ICJ last month. It is because of the policy of Israel that Gaza has become a place of death and despair. In conclusion, Madam President, many propagators of grave atrocities have protested that they were misunderstood, (coughs) that they did not mean what they said, and that their own words were taken out of context. What state would admit to a genocidal intent? Yet, the distinctive feature of this case has not been the silence as such, but the reiteration and repetition of genocidal speech throughout every sphere of state in Israel. We remind the court of the identity and authority of the genocidal inciters. The Prime Minister, the President, the Minister of Defense, the Minister of National Security, the Minister of Energy and Infrastructure, members of the Knesset, senior army officials, and foot soldiers. Genocidal utterances are therefore not out in the fringes. They are embodied in state policy. The intent to destroy is plainly understood by soldiers on the ground. It is also fully understood by some within the Israeli society with the government facing criticism for allowing in any aid to Gaza on the basis that it is recanting on its promise to starve Palestinians. So what do you think about this ICJ case and uh, how do you read how things are happening on the international stage right now? Well, yeah, I mean, to, to add to that, I mean, besides the statements by Israeli officials, I mean, I mean, the bombing has been indiscriminate. It's killed almost 30,000 people in, in, in Gaza, mostly women and children. They've, they've targeted hospitals, shelters, schools, universities, mosques, churches, infrastructure. For four months, Israel's cut off water, food, and medicine to the Strip every single day. Numerous aid organizations complain bitterly that they can't deliver aid under, you know, in a war zone. I mean, the world's watching this play out before their eyes. You know, it's often we like learn about these cases of genocide, like after the fact, and everyone's asking, why wasn't more done? And this is the first one that's been live streamed. And thank, thanks to the courageous, you know, people on the ground in Gaza with, with cell phones, you know, I mean, there's been communication blackouts. The, you know, Israel cuts off internet and and uh, electricity. I, I I do hear that like Gazan journalists are quitting. Well, many of them continue courageously despite the fact that they've they've been targeted. And so thank thank you to all of them for for their sacrifices and their courage, and for for showing us what's going on. So the, another part of their legal case uh, from South Africa is that it, even without the genocidal speech, the actions speak for themselves. 
But to have both of those together was was a very strong and compelling stance. And so the, the, the court decided 15 judges to two that this is a plausible case, and so they're going to take it up. And they, and they ordered um, these provisional measure, measures um, to prevent further genocide and to you know, allow for under unhindered aid immediately. And they ordered, I think the decision was like at least a month ago and that Israel was required by the court to, to provide a report in a month showing how they were complying with these orders. And, uh, you know, when, when the judge orders you to show up and appear and then take, take steps and you don't do it then things get worse for you. And to be clear, this is going to be juridicated over a period of years. So Israel, it does have the opportunity to defend itself in this court. But as far as international pressure, the UN, is there any possibility for a two-state solution through the UN? Um, yeah, as far I mean, just, just to add, add to this, I mean, this week, the United States vetoed the third ceasefire resolution in the UN Security Council. The, the, the question I kind of wanted to pose is, why is it that Israel is so willing to do this so out in the open and, and isn't taking any steps to hide, to hide what it's doing? It's like the definition of impunity. And this, this goes way back. You, you know, I, I think the only way that that the Netanyahu government feels so emboldened to d- defy world opinion. Um, I mean, he's even outwardly defying the Biden administration, which continues, at least at least in words, to insist Israel come up with a plan for, quote-unquote, the day after, and to start talking about a two-state solution. And you know, Netanyahu's like, basically still ruling out a two-state solution. Just today, they came out with their plan. They they plan to maintain control of Gaza indefinitely, maintain security. The, you know, Israeli forces will be in Gaza. the The term was demilitarize and de-radicalize. I, I think we're seeing that, like the, the people of Gaza, are not collateral victims in this. I think I think they are the the target. This this goes back a long ways. Israel occupied southern Lebanon for the better part of five or six years in the in the early to mid-80s. They had effectively expelled the Palestinian Liberation Organization from Lebanon, and they were on the run. They fled to Syria. Ariel Sharon was the defense minister, and he looked the other way while a Maronite militia went into the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps and killed between 1,000 and 2,500 children, women, and old men. And the United States was tepidly asking Israel to restrain itself, but nothing ever happened. I mean, there's, there's, you can point to case after case in the last 56 years of Israel rock, walking right up to that line that the United States draws and stepping over it and there not being consequences. Mm-hmm. And if if the Biden administration really cared about the people of Gaza and really cared about the two-state solution, they could be holding up the additional military aid until Israel ceases hostilities and, and sits down to talk. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought it back home um, because I had wanted to ask you about why it's so difficult to talk about this issue objectively in public. 
And then uh, Claudine Gay was ousted as the first black and second woman president of Harvard due to pressure from extreme right political operatives who stand staunchly against racial justice initiatives. So in in reflecting on uh, Claudine Gay's rejection, the former director of Harvard Hillel penned an op-ed in the Harvard Crimson titled, For the Safety of Jews and Palestinians, Stop Weaponizing Anti-Semitism, where he wrote, quote, As a leader in the Jewish community, I am particularly alarmed by today's McCarthyist tactic of manufacturing an anti-Semitism scare, which, in effect, turns the very real issue of Jewish safety into a pawn in a cynical political game to cover for Israel's deeply unpopular policies with regard to Palestine. Like the occupation of Palestine itself, this policing of speech designed to suppress any criticism of Israel within the U.S. is nothing new. So, Will, you know, your group, Ceasefire Now, RFV, has made a careful point of distinguishing between, on one hand, anti-Semitism, which you condemn, along with all forms of racism, including Islamophobia, and on the other, uh, the critique you're making of U.S. and Israeli policy toward Palestine. So tell us, you know, do you think it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel? Tell us, you know, why you felt compelled to specify this position and, and what does it mean? I think the label of anti-Semitism is, is used as a, as a weapon to silence critics. It's, it's, it's just uh, like after 9-11, being opposed to the bombing of Afghanistan or the invasion of Iraq, you were labeled anti-American. And it's just a very useful way to, to shut down anyone opposing official policy or, or, or dominant policy. Well, good on you and your group for generating public dialogue about this issue. And one of the forms of uh, free speech that has been suppressed by Zionism in the U.S. is how we vote with our dollars. So could you tell us about uh, BDS? What is the BDS movement and how, how can people learn more about it and engage with it? This is the, the strategy that has really had an effect. BDS is Boycott, yeah. Divestment, and Sanctions? Boy, boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. It began inside the Palestinian territories. In fact, the first intifada in 1987, intifada means shaking off in Arabic, that was a overwhelmingly peaceful movement of demonstrations, strikes, tax resistance, and boycotts of Israeli products. And it, it has, over three decades, it has made its way out of the occupied territories and it's made its way onto college campuses and among activist circles and academic circles in the West. And it's the, it's the way that South African apartheid was, was brought to an end through economic pressure. I remember those days. Um, that was my college days. And I remember standing with the blacks of South Africa against apartheid. And I remember when some of the dominoes started falling, it didn't take long for others to follow suit. And we've seen a couple of examples just this week of some pretty high profile entities starting to pull their money out of Israel. 
UC Davis just announced last Friday that they're pulling out $20 million divesting from Israel. There is a weapons manufacturer in Japan that's nervous now that they're going to be liable for genocide if they keep selling to Israel. So um, what, what do you see as the possibilities for BDS on the international stage and or the local stage? The Netherlands was investigating, you know, their um, military contractors and whether they were involved with any supply chains into Israel's um, military. Um, just today I heard that the Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund has, has chosen to divest all of its um, holdings in uh, Israeli companies yeah, I think I, th I think this is the this is the thing that has um, has a chance of, of of making a difference. In addition to um, just public outcry today, I heard on Democracy Now. Let's see, McDonald's, uh, Sabra Foods, Hewlett Packard, uh, Chevron. I'm forgetting. There's one more company. Kind of where the leading leading companies that, that uh, the BDS movement is, is trying to single out right now. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Um, SodaStream is an Israeli company. I... Great. Well, it's, thank you for taking the time out with us um, to go over some of these uh, issues. Uh, could you give us a little bit of a preview for what's next with Ceasefire RFV? Yeah, again, um, next Wednesday we're... Uh, screening this film Israelism uh, at the Basalt Library at 7 p.m. Free and open to the public? Free and open to the public. Um, this is going to go a long way towards educating the, the community um, and, and raising awareness. We're also um, bringing a Georgetown professor, Nader Hashemi, uh, professor of Middle Eastern Studies from, from Georgetown on March 14th. Um, he's going to speak at the Pickens County Library in Aspen at 7 p.m. That is also free. Great. Thank you. Um, would you be so kind as to read this uh, poem by Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish? The wars will end and the leaders will shake hands and that old woman will remain waiting for her martyred son and that girl will wait for her beloved husband and the children will wait for their heroic father. I do not know who sold the homeland, but I know who paid the price. Thanks so much for doing the work that you're doing. Thank you, Adrian. Thanks for um, giving air to this. I can make a peace on earth With my own two hands And I can clean up the earth Lord, with my own two hands With my own, with my own two hands.